0: Hello, normal people. You know who you are. Today, we're going to talk about unraveling and re-raveling the Bible.
1: Yeah, we're going to have a conversation with Rachel Held Evans. Who? Rachel Held Evans. Right. Yeah. So Is she she's, like a thing? She's a thing right now. Okay. She's got it. definitely a thing, or all the things. I think that's the way you say it now. Uh, and she's written uh, many books on faith in general, really, searching for Sunday, which is about the church and loving, leaving, finding the church, the year of biblical womanhood, which we talk about in our conversation, and and faith unravel. But I'm curious for you about this unraveling, re-raveling the Bible, and what's your experience been with that? You've talked a lot about kind of your personal journey with that.
0: I've had my own experiences, and I know many other people have as well. Mine might be sort of typical, but it's a matter of, uh, for me, it was a matter of just learning to read the Bible closely, which happened for me in graduate school. I went to seminary, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same thing. There was more of a protective atmosphere there. But in graduate school, where I was learning from people from different faith traditions, different backgrounds, who would approach the Bible in very different ways than I was used to, uh, that opened up for me the possibility that, you know, there are actually different ways of reading this Bible. And so this Bible that I was holding on to, uh, it just had less explanatory power for me. It just wasn't working anymore. And uh, so I, that was a process of unraveling the Bible. Not For me, never unraveling a faith as a result, but definitely a transformation you, of what faith. What do
1: you mean by that?
0: Well, it's just, it, I didn't lose faith because I was being challenged by reading the Bible. I just thought to myself, boy, I'm pretty dumb. I, I need to learn some things of how this Bible works. And uh, that to me has been, you know, sometimes unsettling, but largely a very positive experience of getting to unravel the Bible and re-ravel it again Um, and feeling secure enough in my faith, I guess, to do that. I know not everyone feels that way, but for me, it was never a matter of faith. It was more a matter of getting to explore a book that's complicated, that is messy, and that people have been. Uh, pouring over Jews and Christians alike for over two millennia. So who am I to sort of solve all the problems quickly?
1: Right. And one of the things we talked about with Rachel, I think, that we both experienced was sort of the pressure to keep, you know, when things start to unravel, oftentimes whenever you're a professor or you're a pastor, it can be a real challenge to admit those things and kind of walk through that. Uh, process. Yeah, because right.
0: of the fear involved. Right. Right. right, Fear of what people will say, fear of what God will say.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, let's get into our conversation with Rachel.
2: So that instead of being afraid of my questions all the time and feeling guilty about my questions, I felt like, hey, this is, they're on to something here. This is, mm-hmm. the Bible invites this. It doesn't um, discourage it, it invites it. And to be given permission to indulge that is really, really, really quite freeing.
0: Rachel Held Evans, thank you for being on our podcast. We're excited to have you.
2: Thank How you guys for you? having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm super excited about what this podcast is about. But and
0: you're tired, is, aren't you?
2: I am tired. Why? <laughs> well, we have a one-year-old who who so?
0: well,
2: he's still, we're still convincing him of two things. We're trying to convince him that sleep is good and that eating is good, and wow. he's not really fond of either one of those things.
0: Aw, yeah. What does he do all a day? Cranky.
2: He's a sweet pea, but he's a little cranky right now.
0: Aw,
2: yeah. Dan's okay, done. so you
0: can be tired. We understand.
2: Yeah, and if there's echoes of screaming and wailing and gnashing of teeth in the background, yeah, it's
0: very biblical. Very
2: biblical. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm practicing biblical womanhood,
0: and it's exhausting. Yeah, right. Okay. Oh my. Well, listen, Rachel, we're thrilled to have you here to talk a little bit about the Bible and all sorts of stuff like that. And um, let me let me ask you this uh, this question. You've had sort of A journey, haven't you? Maybe even a little bit of a rocky journey of rediscovering, reinventing yourself with with faith, right? You've written about that. Um, Your relationship with church, which is huge, but also, I guess, with the Bible as well. So maybe just give us a little bit of thumbnail sketch about that journey.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I grew up in a conservative evangelical home and I was really good at being a conservative evangelical. So that meant, you know, I won all of the sword drills. I challenge, I would challenge both of you to a sword drill, actually, you know, where they... I don't even know a, what that is. You don't know what a sword drill... How I mean, you know my right.
0: word, Pete. <laughs> my parents were German immigrants. <laughs> they grew up Lutheran. I have no um, idea what you're talking about. What is a sword drill?
2: I would think Lutherans would be into this, but um, it's where little children gather in a room and somebody, the Sunday school teacher, whoever, shouts out a verse from the Bible, and you've all got your little Bibles there, and you whoever finds it first and reads it out loud first wins.
0: Ooh, so so abuse through shaming.
2: <laughs> it wasn't abuse, it was a competition. And like, <laughs> I'm I'm an Enneagram three, if you know what that means. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm an eight.
2: Are you okay? Oh gosh, yeah. So you and I would probably really duke it out. You know? Yeah, that, yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm already feeling the competitive <laughs> use is flowing here. Our right, next it.
2: podcast is Jared v. Rachel on yeah. <laughs> and you call out the Bible verse, and we see you it first. Anyway, so I was um, I was kind of the master at that sort of thing, and had you know committed much of Scripture to memory and to heart, and was the good Sunday school Bible. Club girl. I mean, to get a sense of just how much of a a Bible nerd I was, I was on the homecoming court uh, at, in high school, representing the Bible club. So that wow. was my yeah. That's pathetic. <laughs> that was- <laughs> <laughs> that was the only way I was gonna this get over. I'm sorry, I, I thought you were
0: progressive or something.
2: Okay, that <laughs> no, did not start that way. So then, um, yeah, so but I went to a conservative Christian college uh, William, uh, named after William Jennings Bryan, so Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee, which is my hometown. Um, another fun Bible fact, uh, the term Bible Belt was coined by H.L. Mencken when he was reporting on the Scopes trial, which mm. happened right in my hometown of Dayton, Tennessee. Wow. So I truly live in the buckle of the Bible Belt. There's wow. no contesting that. Um, but then you know, soon after graduating from college, I just started to have some questions about everything that I had been taught growing up and started to doubt my faith, which was really scary for me. Right, I,
0: to- just, I want to stop you there. Just explain a little bit of what happened
2: yeah. led you to
0: have those kinds of questions because that's sort of a crucial moment for a lot of people who are on a similar journey. So and, did anything specific happen or just a lot of little things fell into place or what, what's going on there?
2: Well, you know how it is. It's usually a lot of little things, but I, not, not everybody can remember the moment when the first crack started, but I can. Like uh, I was, I guess it was just after 9-11 uh, and on television, on CNN and whatnot, they were showing all of this footage of this documentary called Behind the Veil, which is about life, what life was like for women in Afghanistan when it was being controlled by the Taliban. And I I remember just watching these scenes of these women and their experiences. And one in particular of a woman, you know, she was enshrouded in the burqa and she was brought out to the middle of a um, a soccer stadium where people were on the you know, stands jeering and shouting at her and she was executed on suspicion of adultery or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that scene, that moment, knowing that that was her reality and the reality for many, many women around the world was kind of the moment that everything started to fall apart because what I had been told all my life was not only did that woman suffer incredibly during her life, I've been told that when she died, she went to hell because she was a Muslim uh, along with you know most of the people who have ever lived, uh, and so for me that just having that one person uh, kind of just unraveled it all for me, and that was what started it. So it, was, it started for me with questions about heaven and hell. Uh, even as a child, that had bugged me, but that really brought it to uh, the forefront for me. So that was what started it, and then you know you start to question some other things I'd been assured assured. By all of my teachers, both in my public high school and my Christian college, that there was no scientific evidence to support evolution. And so I had kind of a rude awakening when I just kind of grew up and encountered the reality of that. And, um, and then it's just, you know, a lot of other things, um, just what I'd been taught about women and, and women's roles and gender and sexuality. And once you kind of gave yourself permission to ask one question, it, it does, I totally believe in the slippery slope in that regard. <laughs> you do, asking one question does tend to lead to others. And so I kind of unpacked everything and took each piece out and examined it and thought about it. And I still have lots of doubts and questions about my faith, but I've kind of since made peace with the reality that this is this is just going to be a part of my life. I think I fought doubt for many years and felt like it was something to be ashamed of and to be upset about and that God was mad at me or, you know, I had just, I just wanted him to go away for many years. And, but now I've just kind of decided and realized there's, this is doubt is going to be a companion for me on this faith journey, if you will, this experience. So yeah, that's where I find myself now. Um, kind of, I guess I've fallen to the more progressive <laughs> Christian camp if there is then any camp at all. And
0: um, yeah. Well, Rachel, I mean, you mentioned um, you definitely believe in the slippery slope. I do, too. Right. I, I think it it becomes a slippery slope, though, because maybe we're put on the wrong hill to begin with and it's easy mm-hmm. to slide off of it. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And you've had your
0: experiences in life that have caused you to go back and ask some hard questions but you're like reading the Bible, right? You're reading it again. So how, how, I mean, you're, you're maybe try to help us understand how your relationship to the Bible has changed. Cause it's, I'm, I'm going to assume that it's not entirely negative.
2: Oh, no. Right? It's very I still consider myself like the biggest Bible nerd ever, okay. although I am in the company of two people who might rival that, <laughs> definitely, and certainly have more degrees to show I'm black. not
0: a nerd. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs>
2: um, but yeah, I mean, I, I that was, I love scripture and I love the Bible. I love the stories. Um and I think what what shifted for me was this. Growing up, I learned to defend the Bible uh, as something that it just it is not. Uh, you know, I was taught to defend it as the inerrant word of God, by which people meant that it was historically and scientifically accurate, that it um, essentially communicated the way that we Western. American white folks think it ought to communicate and um, that it was a blueprint for living, you know, sort of the basic instructions before leaving earth mentality Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, I could turn to the Bible and find an answer to any question that I had. And um, that was what I was taught to defend. And that was the Bible I was sort of taught to love, even though what I loved all that time was the Bible stories. And as a writer, I always loved the poetry of mm. the Psalms and, um, and just of so much of scripture is, is, just Ecclesiastes. is just beautifully poetic. And, um, you can always find these images that just haunt you. So, I, but I, I, always felt like I needed to, to defend it, uh, to be something that it really didn't turn out to be. Um, right. and so like a lot of people, I had that crisis where, um, you know, for me, a big part of it was reading and encountering, uh, Joshua and Judges, which you have written extensively about Pete, but, um, <laughs> you know, that was, I mean, if you want a faith crisis, just read yeah. the book of Judges. It's all, I mean, that's all you really need. Uh, and so that, that started to, to, to be my issue, I guess, is just, you we had these passages of scripture that were calling for the complete destruction of entire people groups or so it seemed. And, um, and that didn't sit well with me. And what really troubled me though, was less that those were there, that those stories were there and those passages were there and more that people insisted that i be okay with it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, and and questioned the, the sincerity of my faith because I wasn't. Um, And so that was, that was what really bothered me because I felt like I was being asked to sort of disintegrate my faith in a sense, like, um, yeah, sure, genocide bothers you in every other context, but it shouldn't bother you in the context of scripture. Um, And then, you know, there were other issues too. Like it was pretty clearly that Genesis 1 and 2 aren't supposed to be history and, um, and so I, I, I began to, to question all of that. But what has brought me back and kept me in, in is really, frankly, work like yours, Pete and Walter Brueggemann and um, others who have shown me that if we understand the genres that we're working with in scripture and understand that they're not, you know, what they're not science, they're not history. Um, But that God can still use those genres. God can use myth. God can use poetry. God can use, um, you know, maybe even God can use uh, war stories told in sort of an ancient Near Eastern exaggerated way that God can use those things and that that doesn't make them their genre being different than what I anticipated doesn't make them any less inspired or truthful or helpful or interesting.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so being it, for me as maybe as an English literature person, you know, somebody who studied literature uh, and loves the written word that made sense to me to sort of re uh, just understanding what genres were actually talking about and, and realizing that I had misappropriated
0: uh the text and well, then i had know i think rachel i've talked to a lot of people who have studied literature and i mean not C.S. Lewis. i haven't talked with them but people like that you know who just this, this is what they do i have never met somebody who studied literature and comes to the bible and becomes automatically sort of a publicist literally right.
2: <laughs> right, because it seems it seems really obvious. Like it's sort of like when you read Genesis one and two, it's so obvious to me that this is not meant to be uh, a a history of something. Well, that's because your eyes
0: are blinded by sin
2: that's why you don't see that <laughs> yeah oh i had a pastor ask I'll pray me for i had a you. pastor ask me if it the, when i started asking all these questions he was like well clearly you must be committing some sort of sexual sin <laughs> yes <and that's> why <laughs> Whoa, talking snake. that person has
0: an issue okay
2: <laughs> <laughs> i was like yes and that's why you know uh all the animals in the world on a boat doesn't like, <laughs> <laughs> make sense to me. It must be because I'm sleeping around. Anyway, I don't know if men get that same question, but women Never. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever asked you that. Uh, uh, yeah, but I, but I, I feel like with, with scripture, it's like we have these signals, and we know instinctively. I think when you read Genesis 1 and 2, when you read the story of Noah and the ark, like instinctively, you know this is not. A news report mm-hmm. and yet because it's the bible we've talked ourselves out of that uh instinct mm-hmm. um, because oh well it's in the bible it has to be such and such um right. so i think for me maybe it was a little easier to get around that because as somebody who whose favorite thing to do is to read novels and to read um literature i understood that you can arrive at significant truth via other genres besides history and science and news reports. Like that's not the only way to get to the truth. And that it didn't seem that far-fetched to me that God might use um, myths and um, poetry to communicate and uh, to meet people where they're at. So oh, your work, Pete, and some other folks helped me along and got me to that point, but it, it clicked pretty quickly for me. And so I've been able to keep my my love of scripture pretty much intact. I mean, despite what you'll hear on social media,
1: <laughs>
2: I, I actually really like the Bible. I think it's awesome. And it's just it's, it's just this gift that keeps on giving. And I always feel like I learned something new. And um, yeah, so I'm still, so, still a Bible
1: nerd. Yeah. Ra- Rachel, talk a little bit more about the framework. Like you've talked now about um, your love of the scriptures and your learning, but what's the new framework you bring to the Bible um, in terms of, you know, I think a lot of times a a certain kind of reading of the Bible comes with a certain kind of theology and understanding of God and what God expects of us and all these other things. How do you use the Bible? I think is what I'm asking now in a more, in a more, not just what I, what I don't use the Bible for anymore, but what do you use it for now?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I I guess I use it to understand how people through the ages have understood God and um, what that might teach me. Hmm. And I use it to, I mean, as a conversation starter too. I think one thing that I learned um, through my year of biblical womanhood project, which we can talk about later, but, um, and some other ventures is, was to consult with Jewish commentaries before I (laughs) did anything else. Whenever I arrived at a passage, I wasn't. Sure, of because I think Jewish readers have a much better sense of treating the Bible as a great invitation into conversation, and that the Bible, by with its diversity. Um, with its array of points of view, some of them competing and some of them conflicting, it really serves as this invitation into conversation, which is what gives us the chance to be in community with one another because you know being people of faith isn 't just about being right, you know being people of faith is about being part of a community and I think the Bible invites us into that precisely because it 's difficult to understand precisely because it requires some wrestling. And so I look at the Bible as an invitation into conversation, which is why this podcast is a brilliant idea. Uh, And also I think, um, you know, when it comes to interpretation, uh, putting Christ at the center of of that interpretive process and recognizing that Jesus said, you know, he came to fulfill the law and that, um, you know, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors, yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on those two commands. You know that Jesus had a sense that um, if we distilled it all down, it, we would come out with love. And so, I think that's uh, a good hermeneutical, I guess, approach. Uh, one that I, hmm. I guess, I use is to to try and see it through. Um, with Christ is the climax of the story of Scripture. And what does that mean? If Jesus is what the climax of all of this, this, this story looks like, uh, what does that mean? And it's good news. It's very good news. If Jesus is what God is like, then um, that's, I think, very good news. So that's kind of how I, I approach it today is as a, a great conversation starter and as um, the story that ultimately points us to Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, it, it works I mean how, how do we put it? It's like the Bible is almost like a means of grace that opens doors where in community we can commune with God and experience mm. God rather mm. than you know a rule book or something like that. Even though there are rules in it, right? But we it's it's that's not that's not the heart and center of what it's about. It's 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 too messy, right? To, mm-hmm. To, to just sort of use in a, I mean, you've, you've made some big shifts there then, you know, the way you're talking now is not the way it would have gone down in high school. Oh no. <laughs> for college, right? yeah. No,
2: definitely not. Um, you know, and, and I spent so many years trying to defend scripture. Uh, it was so funny too, when I was first asking all these questions and, and wrestling, uh, people would always point me to this. I don't know if y'all have heard of this book. It's called, I think it's Gleason Archer, or Arthur, Archer Gleason,
0: Gleason Archer,
2: yeah. Gleason Archer, and it's like Bible called the, yeah, the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. Volumes
0: 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, <laughs> or
2: whatever. That yeah. is this massive, super thick book. <laughs> and it's like, it's the worst thing you can give a skeptic, because like I didn't even know half of yeah. was in there. Like I didn't know there were that many problems. No. Uh, so, there was always this sort of like move along, nothing to see here approach yeah. that people had <laughs> that always made me very suspicious uh, mm. as far as you know in responding to my questions and so it's almost like yeah that a big problem for me was just was not just the questions it was how people were reacting to my questions with like this very obvious sense of fear mm. and fix it fix it fix it get over it get over it Genocide's fine when God says to do it. You know, just that really troubled me. It was more the reaction than anything. And I will say I'm very fortunate because I did not get that reaction from my parents. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in a very conservative evangelical culture that sometimes veered into fundamentalism, no doubt. But I was raised in a very, very grace-filled home where my father, who I thought knew everything about God because he went to seminary and, you know, he had a yeah. uh, master's of divinity, which I thought sounded really, really fancy. Um, but he he modeled for me a questioning and thoughtful spirit. Um, and he wasn't afraid to say, I don't know when that was the, the truth um, that I think really helped preserve my faith because I felt like mm. at least at the very least, my home was a safe place for me to talk about this stuff. Maybe my church wasn't, maybe my friend's circle wasn't, maybe my school wasn't, but I could come home and have some real honest conversations without fear. So I feel very fortunate about that. Not everybody has that uh, to fall back. No, I mean, we
0: that. talk to people all the time that, I mean, we have experience, you know, along with people who who tell stories of how, You know, they can't talk to their family anymore, Mm, you know, and it's, that's just horrible, you know, because, you know, they have no community. Mm -hmm. And when you're isolated, you know, it doesn't take long before you start just going off the deep end about stuff. But that's having parents like that. I think a lot of people who know your story or who are listening might be saying, gee, I wish I had that.
2: I know. And if there are people listening who are those parents to others, though, like, yep. thank you. Like, <laughs> you're doing the right thing.
1: Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that fear, because I think I think that's really important. Because, in you know, when I when I was a pastor and, and in another context, I witnessed that it wasn't this the anti. I think it's often interpreted as an antagonism. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. There's an anger toward. But I think you nailed it, that it's a it's a fear what do you yeah. think people are afraid of? Oh, yeah. These questions start coming about the Bible. Well, probably
2: like dying and that's it I mean (laughs) at the end of the day I think we're all just afraid of dying
1: (laughs) that's good we'll turn you into a philosopher yeah
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean I think we're just afraid that if if we're just really afraid that the story of Jesus isn't true um that the resurrection isn't true and we're afraid that if we start to ask one question about the bible then um you know none of it can be believed including the story of the resurrection and then if the story of the resurrection can't be believed then well you know we die and that's that and I think that really scares people it scares me honestly you know I'm not real comfortable with that idea but it's one that you know is always so close to my side now (laughs) always threatening that I kind of gotten used to it. Dan encourages me He, he always says um Well, how was 1975 for you, Rachel? And I'm like, well, I I didn't exist in 1975. And he was like, see, it wasn't so bad. (laughs) (laughs) If you have an existential crisis, you can always just go there. Sounds like a
0: great guy. (laughs) Well,
1: I support
0: you in your journey. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, and I, I, I ask that because I, I have a follow-up to that. You know, how might we approach communities who have this fear? Like, how do, we, how do we create an environment where questions are safer for people to ask? And I think it has to be tied somehow to that fear. Yeah. Have you found ways to talk about the Bible in new ways or talk about faith in ways that kind of bring people's guard down around mm. these
2: yeah, oh, that's a great question. Um, one thing I think that really helps is if if in a church, if the leaders of that community are sort of willing to go first and kind of share their own questions and doubts um, and just, you know, oh, this story includes some details that are very unsettling. I mean, some people have never heard a pastor talk like that. Mm-hmm. And it's such a relief to know you're not alone and also to know that um, – you know, the, the, even your pastor could have these questions, and or even your Sunday school teacher. Uh, you know, when somebody's willing to kind of go first and be honest about their experience, it really frees everybody else in the room to share their experience and their stories. But that's, that's risky,
0: though, isn't it, Rachel, for a oh, pastor yeah. to do that?
2: Yeah. Oh, it's super risky. And I know a lot of pastors who kind of live lives of quiet desperation, to borrow the turn of phrase, because they're, they, they really feel like they can't they have nobody to talk to, nobody, because um, they're afraid it'll get back around to their congregation that they have questions. But I encourage people to, I mean, you don't have to lay it all out there. You don't have to get up there like me and start talking about death (laughs) right away. But, you know, to to be be more honest. And then I also think that humor uh, can be really effective. Pete, you've done a great job with this in your writing, uh, where, you know, just, you know, being, telling a story in kind of a funny new way or just, you know, my year of biblical womanhood project, really, I, I was trying to bring some humor to yeah. the notion of biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. Um, and, and that actually can be really disarming for people. If, if you bring a touch of humor to the, the conversation and let everybody relax and laugh a little bit and not take yourself so seriously and not take yourself as an interpreter. So seriously, be honest mm-hmm. about your own questions and 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 you know if something strikes you as super weird just like say it this is a super weird bible story um and then yeah (laughs) yeah so honesty and and when leaders are willing to go first and a little bit of humor i think all of that can create a a better atmosphere for conversation
0: yeah i mean humor helps because it makes you vulnerable and it gives people permission to participate in that and uh, you know, imagine if your eternal destiny doesn't depend on how you interpret the Bible.
2: <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs>
0: Especially since it's in Greek and Hebrew, and we can't read those anyway. But, um, hey, you know, you mentioned uh, The Year of Biblical Womanhood. Um, that book, which I enjoyed very, very much, I, a lot of people have interpreted, maybe not a lot, some people, some vocal people, have interpreted that as sort of just being negative and snide and all that sort of stuff about, boy, literalism is dumb, it just doesn't work. But you gained a lot of value in your own thinking, I think, about your faith and about the Bible from that experience. and. Maybe, you know, give us a couple of snippets of, of uh, what that process meant to you in terms of maybe your reconstruction or your re-raveling of your face, so to speak.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this was a project that um, I wanted to take on because I, as a woman, I, all my life, I'd always heard about how, well, a woman can't preach because that's not practicing biblical womanhood. And a woman should learn how to sew because biblical women know how to sew and biblical women have children and you know, don't wait 11 years into their marriage before they have them, <laughs> you know, on and on and on. There were all these expectations about what I was supposed to be as a woman uh, with that phrase, biblical womanhood, thrown around uh, quite a bit. And so I wanted to take that apart in a way, using a little bit of humor and, um, you know, some reflection. And, and and I wanted to do it in a way that would be get some attention and draw some attention to that whole conversation, so I did this year of biblical womanhood, kind of taking a page from A.J. Jacobs and his, uh, the year of living biblically, but it was a very different project, because, well, when a woman does it, it's quite different.
0: Yeah, he didn't have to live outside in a tent ever. He did
2: not. (laughs) He didn't have to talk about his period, so, (laughs) like with everybody, Um, so, so it was quite, you know, quite the experience and quite the year, and I had to do a bunch of crazy things, and obviously, sometimes I would take scripture to its most literal extreme in order to tell a good story and to, um, you know, kind of invite conversation. Um, but what I learned throughout the year, I mean, I learned a ton throughout the year, but, but one of the big takeaways was, was I spent some time investigating the stories of women in scripture. And what was super interesting about that was that none of them looked exactly the same. Like none of them, it wasn't like, you know Scripture gives us this blueprint for how to be a woman, and then every woman in Scripture follows that mold um, it's quite the opposite actually there is no blueprint, and every their women are celebrated in Scripture for having completely different lives. I mean, you can look so at like, like- Some have two
0: babies, some have eight babies. Right. <laughs> they're so different. Some There's have not one
2: wife. Some and some, right. And <laughs> some, some are one of many wives and some cover <laughs> their are and some don't. I mean, like a good example is, yeah. you know, the Proverbs 31 woman is always held up as this model for true biblical womanhood. Um, and, you know, the expression that's used there is eshet hail, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but woman of valor in Hebrew but that same Hebrew is used to describe Ruth who looked, whose life uh, looked nothing like the woman in Proverbs 31. You know, Ruth was poor. She was a foreigner. She, um, she she, she was widowed. She didn't have any children. uh, And yet she's described in the same, with the exact same terminology as the Proverbs 31 woman and celebrated for that. Uh, So what I took away from that was a, a new appreciation for, we have, it can be hard as a woman reading scripture because you sometimes feel like there aren't a lot of um, stories that you can relate to and stories that are encouraging rather than discouraging. Um, And so it was kind of fun to find some of those and to see what I could glean from them and uh, to have my eyes opened in a lot of ways. And then also the project was probably the first time I spent a good amount of time speaking with and studying Jewish interpretations of the text and I got to know uh an Orthodox Jewish lady named Ahava who helped me with some of the weird stuff that I had to do through the year following all those um laws from Hebrew scripture. So she just getting to know her and and getting to know some Jewish interpreters and and um seeing the Bible from that perspective uh was pretty, I don't know, life changing I guess. Mm-hmm. It just I, I've I, I really resonated with the invitation into questioning. Uh, that is just at the, at the heart of how they engage their Well, You tell a
0: story in the book, if I recall, you also, when you spoke at Eastern um, last year, I guess a year and a half ago now, um, you, you told this story as well about your experience, I think, in the living room with Ahava, is that her name?
1: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I think the men were sitting around the table arguing okay. about Torah.
2: Yeah, she said. The way she told it was, she's, her husband's a rabbi, and so they had a bunch. Of, he had a bunch of other rabbis and scholars and whatnot over for dinner. And she said, "Oh, they were talking and talking late into the night and debating the Torah, and nobody could seem to agree on anything. And we were running out of food." And oh, Rachel, it was wonderful. <laughs> you know, she she knew that the text had invited them into this community and this conversation. And for her, that was part of the deal. That's what, um, that's part of what made scripture beautiful. And I just really appreciated that perspective and it changed mine in a big way. Um, so that instead of being afraid of my questions all the time and feeling guilty about my questions, I felt like, hey, this is, they're onto something here. This is, yeah. the Bible invites this. It doesn't um, discourage it, it invites it. And to be given permission to indulge that is really, really, really quite freeing.
0: Instead of, I mean, it's, this is a bit of a caricature, but instead of <clears throat> a bunch of evangelicals sitting around the table, smiling and acting like they sort of agree, but maybe politely sort of disagreeing and then leaving and you think it's all okay. And then you get stabbed in the back later. <laughs> you know, they just do it right there. I mean, I'm, and I'm serious. I mean, I've been in Jewish context as well, where the arguing is very fierce, but then they walk out arm in arm.
2: Yeah. That's just what you do. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. It's it a frame, like
0: liberating thing that you get to discuss and argue and doubt and not be sure just like the Bible does. So yeah, there's something, there's a lot, I think we can learn from Jews. How's that for an understatement, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a great experience. Um, yeah i mean um anything else because that's such a wonderful book i just i have all these snippets in my head about um you had these moments of positive reflection about even the value of some of the weird things that happen in the bible
2: yeah yeah absolutely and you know even the one thing i did during the year was uh, address i addressed those texts of terror as they're sometimes called yeah. that are uh, of course, really troubling for any woman to read stories about women being raped and dismembered and um, really having very little voice. And, um, and so I, I, instead of just ignoring those, I really wanted to confront them and talk about them. So a friend and I had like a ceremony honoring those women and we retold their stories and we lit candles and um, you know, we talked about um, how important it is to tell those stories so long as there are women who are victims of violence and misogyny and, um, and how important it is to honor those stories for what they are uh, and to kind of embrace the troubling nature of them so that we, we fight against that Um, because patriarchy is far far from gone. It's certainly very obvious in the pages of scripture and it's still with us today. And so um, that was a very meaningful ceremony and, uh, talking with people who've read the book, I've heard from pastors and churches who have incorporated it into their worship. And I even had, you know, like a an Ash Wednesday service around it or used it in their liturgy. And that was really encouraging to hear that it was helpful in that way. And it was it was healing and helpful for me. Because I, again, it comes back to this again, it's not so much the text themselves and the troubling text themselves. It's the response people have when you acknowledge that you're troubled by them. Um, and so being able to create an environment where we sort of sit together uh, in that the sadness of these stories was incredibly healing for me. And it was something I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do.
1: Yeah, well, say more a little bit, Rachel, about this. You, you know, you kind of keep touching on on being a woman and and the Bible and the interactions there. You know, the book was the year of biblical womanhood. And what, you know, in that experience or, or sense, you know, thinking of your journey so far, how has that changed how you view women and mm-hmm. or how you view the Bible's view of women? And yeah. What shifts have happened there for you?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like every day. Uh, one thing that I've benefited from recently is uh, reading, and, and in the next book I'm writing, I quote a lot more from these folks. Um, is reading womanist interpretations of scripture. And so these are the perspectives of black women looking to the Bible and realizing how completely different that is even uh, from me as a white woman (laughs) reading scripture. Uh, I mean, the big takeaway is that like we, none of us get to just like leave ourselves at the door when we come to read the Bible. And sometimes it's like, no offense to white dudes, but like white dudes think that like theirs is the objective interpretation. So, like it people will say like... Yeah, uh, yeah it's <laughs>
1: without an adjective. Our theology yeah. has no adjective.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. So it's like you have womanist interpretations, feminist yeah. interpretations, and then just... There's no white manist. <laughs> yeah, or like contextual theology. It's like well, you know, white dudes are doing theology in a context. <laughs> no, we don't do that. <laughs> so, but, um, but I needed even myself to kind of get out of the white ladies' uh, way of reading the bible and so for this last this the book i'm working on now i've been spending a lot of time with womanist interpretations and one of the best books i read and that was sisters in the wilderness by Dolores williams and she her whole she centers a lot of her theology and her talking about the bible around the story of hagar uh which is one that i had you know had always Found interesting as a woman, but thinking of the story of Hagar from the perspective of a black woman is really eye-opening because you know Hagar was a slave. Uh, Hagar was forced to have a child by her master. She was you know cast out of the home, um, and she started a new you know she was Egyptian, so she was um, you know uh, an ethnic minority, and so I think. I can't remember what the question was. Oh, (laughs) um, but reading as a woman or reading as a black woman or a white man, I mean, I think what I've come to realize is recently is especially is that, you know, the more folks you can read the Bible with the better picture you get of what the Bible is saying. And, um, and so it's important to me to not, to not just read people who think and look like me or have the Mm -hmm. same background as I do. Um, I, that's something I always want I always want badly for men to understand why certain stories of scripture might resonate differently with women and why you know just rushing through it might be a bad idea in your sermon or um, and so I, but part of that is understanding that how I interpret certain passages of scripture might be a little screwy um, when I haven't taken the time to listen to how somebody else might. Might read
0: it, um, so yeah. that's, yeah, that's I wonder too I if, if you know some of those stories, those texts of terror. I've I've wondered whether the biblical writer wants you to react in a recoiling kind of way.
2: Yeah,
0: it, it might not be sort of normal, like Jezebel's daughter or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, that it isn't like yeah, this is sort of normal. Nothing to see her move on. You might it, the part of the purpose might be to upset and to unsettle the readers. And so we shouldn't always assume that these things are just there and sort of insensitive. It's like you're saying, Rachel, it's how they're used. It's how people respond to them that becomes maybe more of a problem than some of these texts themselves.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of the texts of terror come out of Judges, which was not like... It wasn't like Judges is bragging about how great things were. Right. (laughs) You know, it's not like it's endorsed exactly. But then it's not it's not condemned either. And I think that's what a lot of women struggle with. Right. Is we like to see like a little verse at the end, like, you know, and that's why this is my patriarchy is <laughs> terrible. Everybody like, I remember everybody, guys, yeah. and that's why you always leave a note. Like, and this is my patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. But there's not that like <laughs> condemnation. We have to kind of, right. we have to read between the lines, uh, which is why I think feminist, um, feminist biblical studies is so interesting is because you, you have to do a lot of digging to sort of see the redemptive
1: right. uh, stories
2: there. And But they're there. They're definitely there. I see them. But it takes it takes more than a cursory reading.
1: Well, that just kind of reminds me of what we were talking about earlier. It reminds me of that uh, John Levinson quote, you know, is the Bible a message to be proclaimed or a problem to be solved? Mm. And, and if we approach it as a message to be proclaimed, we tend as Christians to say, we don't problematize the text. We actually try to actually rid ourselves of the problems so that we can proclaim the unified message. But if we approached every text as a problematized text, that it invites us into problem solving together, then you know, the text doesn't need to explicitly affirm or deny anything because the whole thing is problematized. The whole point is to come and disagree together
2: yeah, absolutely. I love I love how you phrase it that way. Absolutely, and the, and there's so much to be had in that conversation because you you learn so much more just taking somebody else's perspective into account. I mm-hmm. just I would never have thought of Hagar the way I think of her now mm-hmm. um, had I not just encountered that one that that one book and that 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 woman's interpretation of it. So it's mm-hmm. it's that's what that's why I can't get away from loving scripture so much, and that's what I mean by it being just endlessly giving it's just, there's always, it has, it has brought me into some of the most meaningful, encouraging, eye-opening, convicting conversations of my life. And I'm so grateful for that. It works
0: on you, doesn't it?
2: It does. It It does. does. And just when you think you've figured it out, it's like something comes along and, and you know, you're, you're back to wrestling again and it's, it's kind of great. I kind of love it.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you love it. Anyway, um, listen, uh, we're, we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. I want to ask you, a, uh, I hope, a quickish kind of question. Um, you mentioned before your love of stories, of Bible stories. And uh, do you have a favorite
2: one? Oh, that's a great question. Um, oh, shoot, Pete, why would you ask that?
0: <laughs> well, if you don't have one, you don't have one. That doesn't make do you a bad like, person.
2: I mean, it's really hard. <laughs> Yeah, clearly I want to know that. what y'all's favorite Bible story is, and then when you tell me, I'll have thought of mine.
0: no, this, I'm not being interviewed, you're being interviewed
2: <laughs> this is a it's a conversation piece. don't weasel, <laughs>
0: don't weasel out of this Evans. <laughs>
2: Um
0: My favorite think... Bible story is the utter despondence of Kohelet and the book of Ecclesiastes, mm-hmm. and I also love the um the parable of the lost son because of the father's reaction to the son. Even if the son doesn't mean it, he comes mm-hmm. back just because he's hungry, but his father can't wait to see him again. No mm-hmm. judgment. Those are two That's of it. my favorite ones. Now your turn.
1: Jared?
2: I,
0: I, I would say- <laughs> hey, who's running this anyway? <laughs>
1: exactly. I'm getting uh, I would say actually at this point, the, I love the childlike nature of the book of Jonah. It's so surprising. The story is so surprising. If you read it in the Hebrew and you understand the twists and turns, it reads like a, a fairy tale, but with this super rich and profound implication that I think I would actually tie to the parable of the, the, the prodigal son. Um, so I would say Jonah for sure.
2: Oh, that's a good one. Um, I mean, I'm writing a whole book right now about Bible stories and I still, I don't know. I don't know which one is my favorite.
1: Okay. You don't have Let me to have
2: think about it. Let me think. I'll come up with something by the time we're totally Talk about
1: down. anticlimactic nope. here at the end. I know. It's like, no,
2: I know. You can ask everybody that question because like just,
0: just say what I tell my students to say. If I if people ask you a question about the Bible, if you don't know the answer, just say Jesus.
2: Okay. Yeah. The Walter is story. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, whoever, whatever Walter Brugman says is his. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> That's also <amazing>. mine. <laughs>
0: Oh, gosh. Well, listen, Rachel, it was really great to have this talk with you. have had a lot of fun, and um, why don't you tell us quickly uh, what you're working on to keep alluding to this book. It's not going to come out for a while, but uh, what is it?
2: Yeah, it's a book. I've called it Bible Stories, actually, which makes oh. the answer to that last laugh. <laughs> question. <laughs>
0: Wow, this one's <laughs> going to tank, Rachel. You're going <laughs> to talk about 40 copies of this reason.
2: Um But it's about... Um kind of my own experience with the Bible, Uh, and I will say this book is probably not coming out for another year. It's, it is, I'm turning it in two years late, because life got a little crazy with the kid, and, um, you know, just the last book was, you know, I had a lot to do around that, so, um, but this is one that I'm really excited about, and I'm really enjoying writing, so what I do is I retell some familiar Bible stories in uh, some creative ways, Um, so retell Genesis 1 and 2, and Uh, the story of Hagar and the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho and all that kind of retell those stories. And then, um, uh, I write about how we might understand the genres of these stories and how they're not completely unlike uh, origin stories and war stories and deliverance stories that we have in our own culture, in our own lives. Um, so the the goal is to kind of help, um, recover that joy and surprise um, Mm -hmm. around scripture um, the way that I've experienced it myself over these last few years. So it's a little bit less personal than some of the other things I've written. It's a little less of a memoir, even though I tell my own story with the Bible. It's a little bit, um, and I, which is good. I, I needed a little break from memoir, you know, to have a kid and process this, that whole experience.
0: Well, <laughs> so, oh, your memoir is going to change, Rachel, in a few years. Later. I know.
2: <laughs> it's definitely, definitely going to change.
0: Um, so Help me I'm just, dying? That's your next memory.
2: <laughs> I will say, like, I quote both of you so extensively in this book. It's embarrassing. It's I mean, it really is like I've had to, i 've had had to go through and very deliberately take some quotes out because it started to sound like fangirling or something i really <laughs> uh, 'm so 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 grateful for your work um, because it really helped me understand the, the various genres that we 're talking about in scripture and um, and I think it really enriched how this book is coming out so Look for, I, you, will be, you will be very heavily footnoted in this book, and I hope you will take a, a read when it's out.
0: Oh, absolutely. Goodness, of course I will. Um, okay, and for people who have been alive for about two weeks, uh, tell them where they can find you online.
2: Oh, um, you can find me at com. And my Twitter handle is Rachel Held Evans, and my Facebook page is Rachel Held Evans. <laughs> so I'm—I get an A for consistent branding. So yeah. if you know so my you're name, sort you of
0: know. into yourself there, aren't you, Rachel?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was actually Dan's idea. He encouraged <laughs> <laughs> ah, uh, like it's, it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah,
2: it was actually a good idea. And I you're had sort of
0: active ideas. on social media too, I hear.
2: Yeah, I've been kind of, yeah. And you I'm, not talk about I'm not, not actually proud of everything I've said on Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who is? It wouldn't be Twitter if you were.
2: No, a couple of days ago, I had to apologize twice in one day for some things I said on Twitter. And somebody was like, Rachel Evans is giving us a master class on humility. And I'm like, actually, no, I was just being an ass. Like, it's not... <laughs> so yeah, in this political climate, um, yeah... Twitter and Facebook are not always my friends. Yes, <laughs> <But> I'm there.
0: <laughs> All right, Rachel. Well, listen. Thanks again. We appreciate your time here. I had a great time talking with you.
2: Oh, thank you, guys. I'll think of my favorite Bible story and send you an email. Email, nice.
1: yeah. Thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out Faith Unraveled or Year of Biblical Womanhood. Uh, you can find Rachel online at RachelHeldEvans.com. She's also very active on Facebook and Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at JBIAS, J-B-Y-A-S. Or well, if you're tired of J- Jared, you can follow me on Twitter at Pete Enns, and also on
0: Facebook at Peter ends. And, you know, if you got some time, check out my website, PeteEnns.com, and there you can see some of my latest books and uh, sign up for my newsletter. Why wouldn't you, right? That's sort of a bucket list thing. You need to sign up for my newsletter and see my speaking schedule. And most important, we can continue on my blog conversations like the one we just had.
1: Thanks again, everyone. And we hope you join us next time where we will be talking with the man, the myth, the legend, Walter Brueggemann.